It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we are looking at the big matches and the big titles of the 1950s through to the 1980s in Japan with the big names. It's it's kind of a bit of a flair for the gold for Jumbo Saruta because there's a lot of Jumbo Saruta and it's kind of covering that base. There's an also lot of awful lot of Giant Baba. Uh, there's a lot of AJP, AJPW in general, which is good. Um, and basically, I wanted to do something a bit different this week and have a break from the norm and go back to some historic matches from the past. And to join me today is Mr. Marcus Green of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. How are you, sir? Doing okay. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back as well. Now, watching old wrestling, if, like me, you're a Catholic, is a bit like going to confession. It quite takes quite a long time. It can be quite boring, and you're probably not going to feel great at the end of it. However, it is still pretty necessary to your life as a Catholic. Maybe not watching old wrestling. But what we've done here is I put a playlist together, as I am wanted to do from time to time, and it looks at the biggest matches I could find in Japan, uh, starting with the biggest names. And my idea was to see how the big names from North America fit into the Japanese culture and the Japanese style of wrestling and see what big matches were like back in the day. And we open up with the biggest match of them all, literally the most watched professional wrestling match of all time which was Luthez versus Ricky Dozan for the NWA Heavyweight Championship of the World in Currican Hall, well, Currican Stadium, not Currican Hall, in front of 30,000 fans on the 7th of October, 1957. Now, this wasn't the televised version, which I think is available. This was a film version, which showed the match between Fez and Ricky Dozan and the whole build-up. Marcus, what's your thoughts on this before we get into the details of it? Because this is very different to what you're used to. Yeah, I think that is basically how you can sum this whole thing up for me. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, at its cause, just, you know, wrestling at its finest, you know. Um, you know, these are the two, like, OGs, except in this, for wrestling, it'll be original grapplers. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it was good. It, it was great. Um, I've obviously watched Ricky Dozan, got a chance to watch some of his stuff, obviously, you know, um, coming off of playlists that you put together for me before for the show, but this was definitely my first time getting to uh, see Luthez in, in all his glory and, and getting to see wrestling in, in that in that day and age. So it was just wrestling at its finest. Like you said, um, it, it could be long, plotting, and, and boring, but if you really can sit down and really appreciate just the classic nuances of, of wrestling at its base and, you know, appreciate these men just – given just pure grit for a good hour and some odd minutes, you know, it's, it's exactly what this sport is meant to be. So. Yeah, we should lay that out. This was an hour time limit match, best of three falls for the NWA heavyweight championship. And as we explained later in the card, as we look, go further on into the future, the, the champ didn't have to win at all. The champ could lose one fall to nil in a 60-minute time limit match and still retain the title. The champion had to lose by two clear falls. That was the NWA rules. And that plays into what Lou has to do as champion 
which is kind of stall and make things drag out. And you kind of get the understanding of what his life was like when you watch this match. Now, this was a big match. It was part of the JWA Championship Tour. So he defended this belt on a tour around Japan for a couple of weeks. In the, the film shows, Ricky Dozan and his wife meeting Luthez and his wife on the plane because they were good friends in real life. And the um, kind of, how can I put this? The story in the film is of them being, you know, shown around Tokyo. They literally drive them around Tokyo in open top cars. I think they should still do that personally <laughs> to promote the shows and promote the uh, event. And then it's 30,000 at Kurikan Stadium, an outdoor arena in October. And if anyone is in Tokyo now, they'll tell you it's not particularly warm in October in Tokyo to watch this hour-long main event. Plus another card. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on with this match. And it's a very different presentation to what we see today. Obviously, they're making money on the live gate. That's the idea. And the TV rights, much like we are today. And this was watched by more people than any other wrestling match ever has been. 97%, sorry, 93% of the Japanese TV-only public watched this particular match. It fascinated a nation. Uh, now, I'll admit, there probably wasn't many more channels than one in Japan in 1957. However, it does show you the domination of the zeitgeist that Luthers and Ricky Dozon had. They, everyone was wrestling experts. Now, the match, like we said, isn't particularly thrilling. There's one high spot, a Luthers press, four minutes into the match. And the rest of it is pure grappling. It's very straight up and down mat work. By gum, they know their toe holds, don't they, Marcus? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, it, it's quite good. And Ricky Dozen's quite heavy on the waist locks as well. However, from a telling a story point of view, where Lou is just trying to get to the end of the hour without dropping a fall, or at least just dropping one fall and not having to win the match, that's what makes these matches fascinating because the actual philosophy of the match is very different to what we expect in a world championship match today. You know, the out in a world championship match today is uh, a knockout or a countout. And the idea of the finish is really very different to what this was because we don't have time limits anymore for a start in Western wrestling. You do in AEW, but not so much in Impact and in WWE. And I don't understand it because, you know, in theory, the first match could last for two hours and you could end up with like two lower card talents going for two hours on Raw and that would be the whole show. I'd quite like to see that, to be honest with you. I think that'd be really interesting. But, you know, the idea of a time limit becomes so important in these matches, and that's what makes them the whole story. Anything else to say about this one, Marcus? No, I mean, I think this kind of set the pace for the whole playlist for me because really it's so many of these matches um, obviously took place in, in Japan, and then we got to, like you, see, uh, like you said, see the kind of westernized audience in terms of uh, American wrestlers come over here and, and you know, test their metal, if you will. And I think, you know, really they're just, you know, 13 chess matches. Really, it's just cool to see that because, again, this kind of, this is pure wrestling. So, you you know, I, I gain, I regain an appreciation for a headlock takeover, a, a deep arm drag and stuff of that that nature. And it really just gets back to the mechanics, you know, of, you know, and the building blocks of the kind of almost video game aspects of wrestling we, we kind of see on a regular day, specifically over here. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's the thing is perhaps a lot of this is missing from Monday Wrestling is the actual core base of um, what you see in the ring. You know, 
you do get this style of stuff, but it's much faster paced. Luther, sorry, um, sorry, Minoru Suzuki and Zack Sabre Jr. And to an extent, Desperado in New Japan Pro Wrestling kind of use this approach in a much more faster paced, pick up the speed kind of way. But the basic principle for them is the same as what Ricky Dozen and Luthez have here. Tell a story in the most interesting manner using the environment around you. Well, this was a time before out of the ring brawling. It was all meant to happen in the ring. And it's interesting to see as well, Luthez working as a heel, really, he did all sorts of nefarious things. And if you look fast forward to the end of his career, last match in Japan against Masahiro Chono, he actually wrestled a very similar style of match. It was a bit more upbeat. But again, he cheated, and but he did all the things he used to do back in the fifties. Yeah. Also, one thing I, I paid attention to, uh, just randomly caught my eye, the ropes were a lot looser during this time. Yeah, there wasn't the environment. If you look at it, it's a bit like boxing ring ropes, like they're that loose. I'm just watching the start of the match now because I've got the playlist in front of me for notes. And, like, Luthez is leaning on the middle rope and everything's bouncing off. One of the reasons why they didn't run the ropes back in those days is because ropes weren't necessarily tight. It's like watching old USWA tapings, because, like, back in the day in the USWA, the ropes were absolutely loose, and people used to bounce off them at a regular speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a bit like that, really. It's not as um, what we expect to see today as far as a, a ring layout is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then we'll move on to the next match on this particular playlist. Because this is this is a long playlist. And it's, again, it's from now, it's back to the JWA. It's 10 years later. It's Giant Baba versus Bruno Sammartino from, ooh, where are we? For the NWA International Heavyweight Championship in Tokyo. I think it'd be the old Tokyo Arena. Best two out of three falls. Giant Baba, the current champion, defends against the former WWF Heavyweight Champion, Bruno Sammartino. This one is a little more interesting. In fact, no, he was the current WWF champion at the time, looking at the belt around his waist, as I realized. <laughs> so this was the fact that WWF had deals with JWA as far as their championship was concerned. And the NWA and WWWF, as it was then, was part of the NWA. So, you know, the WWWF championship was a company title. It wasn't considered a world title. The NWA was happy to have them on board. Bruno Sammartino was considered a world-class wrestler and a world champion. He was very big in South America and Brazil. Uh, the WWE Tootsmont and Vince McMahon Sr. did do a lot of tours of South America in those days, and they considered him the world champion of the local promoters. And in Japan, he was considered a higher level world champion, though it never really kind of got to the levels of the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. But the WWF Championship, sorry, WWWF Championship was highly regarded in Japan and obviously would have much more to play later in the 1970s. But here in the late, seven, late 60s, Samatino was a strong contender for the NWA International Heavyweight Championship. Now, for those of you who don't know what the NWA International Heavyweight Championship is, I'll explain. Now, we did go back, back in the early days of the Troopany Show, me and Ben Spindler did talk about the NWA in Japan fairly in depth, but we never looked at any matches like we have done with this. The NWA International title was a title pretty much invented by Lou Thez because Lou liked skiing, and he would go off to Europe and have a European skiing holiday um, and would pay for it by wrestling and defending an NWA title. Now, he couldn't take the world title with him, because the promoters in North America and Japan would scream blue murder. 
So we would drop the title before he went on holiday, take the NWA International Heavyweight Championship with him, defend him all across Europe, go skiing in Switzerland and Italy, fly home again, pick up the NWA World Heavyweight title in the match, and continue on his merry way. Now, what happened was he eventually lost that title to Ricky Dozan in Japan, and it became one of the most fundamentally uh, important titles in the JWA in the 1960s. And then Giant Baba, who was the last person to have the belt in the JWA, took it with him to new to all Japan Pro Wrestling, where it currently makes part of the Triple Crown. That belt is still in circulation, though they don't use that actual belt anymore. That belongs to Hitoko Baba, Giant Baba's widow. Um, they actually use a, a new belt to represent the Triple Crown. But it became one of the most storied titles in Japan. And it's matches like this against Bruno that really set it apart. What's your thoughts on the politics of that, Marcus? And what's your thoughts on this matchup? It's always fascinating to me um, just looking at the the nuances and the ways that, you know, performers back then just had to maneuver in the business because it was just such a different beast back then. I mean, obviously, you know, the scheduling, the, the saying that they you know, did things internationally, probably just putting it mildly, but just how you kind of had to move, like, that's brilliant, the fact that, you know, he, he used his uh, ability, you know, as a, as a champion to um, basically, like you said, fashion himself a vacay in the process, but it's also um, interesting because in a way it's, you know, I guess somebody else would kind of look at it as like, um, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily... I guess from a vain point of view, somebody would be like, oh, I guess he doesn't necessarily think much of the titles. He just drops them at will and, and whatnot. But to me, you know, back then, the ability to do that was kind of like the beauty of it and guys being able to have the the wherewithal to, to know just how to move because I think that was even more important than it is today because so many things in the business today are more so linear because everybody kind of feels like they kind of do a little bit of the same thing in certain aspects. But back then, you know, um, obviously, he was, you know, no soft guys on this list. We're going to get into that in a minute at all. But, you know, knowing how to maneuver in those in those just old Western, you know, uh, who's the toughest on the block days, um, to me, just proves, you know, how smart he is. And then you get to the ring and, yeah, with this match. And, yeah, it, it kind of it, it threw me off because, obviously, you know, we – had a great show talking about the, I guess, the life and times of, you know, the legendary in, in the late, you know, Bruno. And I get to this match and I'm like, okay, he's the thicker kind of, you know, uh, we know how tough Bruno is and was. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I judged it off of size and then Baba kind of just got there and broke him down. And I'm like, oh, he is such a problem. Because in my mind, now I'm thinking, in my generation, I'm like, oh, this is what they wanted Kali to be. Okay. All right. So it's, it's all making sense. And then I kind of just sat back and enjoyed the match with these guys and um, just really just took in just how deceptively um, just awesome John Bobber was, you know, at, at a time where now guys aren't necessarily, they can be as, I guess, well-rounded, but they aren't, you know, as he was. Like, he, he pulled stuff out in terms of kicks-wise, late in the match, just because he wanted to, not because he had to. So that was, uh, it was a kind of bit of reality check that I appreciate. Yeah, Giant Baba's awesome, especially in this period. I mean, he's seven feet tall. He's a true giant. He had giantitis. 
Um, and he was a retired baseball player. Ricky Dozan took him under his wing. He was one of Ricky Dozan's four pillars of heaven, the original four pillars of heaven in the JWA. Antonio Inoki, Ricky Dozan, uh, Giant Baba, and I think it was Rishi Kabora. Or, no, Tony Boru, that was it, Tony Boru. They were like the original stars of JWA. And Baba was an excellent technical wrestler. You know, one of the reasons that made him great promoter was because he had such a great wrestling mind and he wrestled all these greats down the years and knew different styles and different matches. And Bruno's a different style of wrestler. And he's wrestling different here to what he wrestled in New York. Because in New York, he's the babyface. He's the biggest babyface in wrestling and possibly the biggest babyface in wrestling history. He appealed to all those Italians that lived in New York that had moved there over the previous hundred years with you know the great Italian dysphoria uh, across to North America. He was one of Vince McMahon Sr.'s key men in developing the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. He was a made man. You have to bear in mind at this time, he was working for the Toronto promotion one night a month because he was the guy that gave him the star. And he was the biggest star in Toronto by a long way. And when Vince McSun Sr. wanted to hire Bruno to come in as heavyweight champion, um, he said, I'll do it, but you give me one night in Toronto every month. And I go wrestle for... um, I think it was Frank Tunney, Jack Tunney's father. No, no, it, yeah, yeah, it'd be Frank Tunney. I go wrestle for the Tunney family, and, and I'm pretty sure it was then. Um, and you go wrestle for Toronto one night a month, and then I'll wrestle WWF dates for the rest of the month. So he was flying all over the world. He was doing dates in Japan at a, uh, fairly regularly. He would go and do more Japanese tours when he dropped the WWF championship later in, oh, I think, in the early, a couple of years later, I think. Um, and wrestled more regularly in Japan because he just had time. <laughs> when you're WWF champion, even though it's a regional title, you are wrestling all over the Northeast and wherever Vince McMahon Senior sends you, and Canada as well. So it was a heavy promotional schedule for him. But again, he's a technically gifted professional wrestler despite his size. He is a badass shooter. He knows what he's doing. And Baba is a technically gifted professional wrestler as well. Despite their size, they're kind of having a match that, I don't know, you'd kind of see in a New Japan ring today if you saw Zack Sabre Jr. and uh, Minoru Suzuki working. It'd be very much like this. It wouldn't be as slow-paced and as plotty, but these guys are both, you know, Baba's 300 pounds and Bruno's 260 pounds. They're not light. (laughs) But it's a technical professional wrestling match. And it's interesting to watch because this was the expectation at the time. And it's interesting to hear the crowds and the different responses they have to the crowds. The Luthes and Ricky Dozen match, I don't think they mic the audience at all. So you can't really get a true representation. It probably canned in. Whereas this is a TV taping. And it's, it's a slow build of tension in the match. Bruno starts as a baby face and wrestles straight. And there's frustration on both sides. But it ends up being pretty brutal towards the end. But again, it's another hour-long match. And... There's a lot of back and forth in this. You've got to be patient with it. But to the fact that Bruno and um, Baba went for an hour, you know, two guys that size, the kind of cardio that they had back then was just insane. Well, they didn't go for an hour. They went for 45 minutes. But that's just incredible, really. What's your thoughts on this match, Marcus? 
Yeah, I just like like you said the the slow evolution of pace of it because it just got to the point where Bruno like I'm guessing like I said I haven't seen like a, a litany of his matches but whatever he clearly worked on a lot of guys that wasn't necessarily working here specifically like I said you know these are definitely two heavyweights but it, you know Bruno appears to have you know a bit more of a, a thickness to him. So, you know, when he's, you know, gets off the mat finally and just tries to kind of work some of that size around Baba standing up, you almost forget that this tree has these limbs and he just bring them down on the top of his head. And the fact that Bruno just kept getting up when like these are true brain knocking shots um, and, and the selling throughout this playlist is just is insane. Um, something I'm also <laughs> not necessarily accustomed to these days in certain aspects so many aspects uh depending on the company but uh yeah it was just um really cool seeing this i guess what you would say like the the boulder and bruno in a lot of ways trying to uh use this rough edges to chop down this like huge uh redwood i guess if you will and like you said that building frustration on both sides but it just felt like more so with bruno because um it's interesting that you you mentioned zach saber and and Minoru because you know, it, it really feels like he's like the, they're the evolution coming off of, you know, John Bob, because obviously Zach kind of resembles his size a little bit and, and definitely had that technician. But, you know, Minoru just will egg you on the whole match with his faces. And that's kind of what Bob was doing here with, you know, with Bruno taking his best shots, not really going down and just looking up like that's all you got. So that, that was some really good stuff. Yeah. He- Giant Baba is a windy man, just like uh, Zack Sabre Jr. in that style. He's a very good defensive wrestler. He's a very good technical wrestler. And he stalked his opponents. And very much like Zack Sabre Jr. does. He's the same, like you said, he's much bigger. But he's the same kind of body type. He's like a foot taller and 100 pounds heavier. But he does wrestle. I mean, I'm watching these matches. I'm watching this now. And like his, his variations, his speed as well, you know, he's he's got so many variations of arm bars and short arm scissors. When you've seen a guy seven feet tall apply a short arm scissors, that's just incredible to watch. You know, as, I mean, as well, it works out that, you know, he was unusual for Giants at his time. Obviously, a couple of years later, Andre the Giant comes along and he's kind of told to calm down and not wrestle like this. But Giant Babble was the prototype for Andre the Giant, really. He was the same kind of character, just that he kept his weight down and he could always go. But it's a very different kind of approach. Should we move on to the next one, Marcus? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, then. So we're in 1974, December 1974, and we're on our first match of All Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, when Giant Baba left JWA, he formed All Japan Pro Wrestling, which was slightly before New Japan Pro Wrestling was formed with Antonio Inoki. And Baba was the big star of JWA, and he wanted to start a company in, in his own kind of image. And AJPW was very much Baba's monster, as it still kind of is today. The, the shadow giant Baba will always fall over all Japan Pro Wrestling and Noah and Big Japan Pro Wrestling and the other Kings Road style, uh, Kings Road style um, companies. Where the thing is with AJPW, they took the NWA affiliation, much to the chagrin of Antonio Inoki, I might add, to AJPW from the JWA. So the NWA International Heavyweight Champion went with Baba and it became the top title in AJPW for a long time. The NWA developed the United Nationals title, which was part of the 
uh, Triple Crown as well. And they started their own organization, the Pacific Wrestling Federation, which was a regional title. The PWF Championship was the top championship in the AJPW stable, but it wasn't a world championship and they never proclaimed to promote a world championship. The only world championship AJPW promoted was the tag team championships, which would be developed into the double cup sometime later. In fact, after their NWA affiliation ended. But it did mean access to the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. And in 1974, at the beginning of AJPW, the NWA World Heavyweight Champion was Jack Briscoe. Jack Briscoe was from Oklahoma. He was a great professional wrestler. He was a great amateur wrestler. He was a shooter. Him and his brother, Gerald Briscoe, was, you'll probably know Gerald more as a stooge these days from Vince McMahon's stooges in the Attitude Area than you will as a professional wrestler. But Jerry was an incredibly good professional wrestler. They're both from the Florida Territory uh, in this particular time. But Jack was kind of the prototype NWA heavyweight champion of the 1970s. He was young. He was good looking, college educated. He was smart. He was media savvy. And he could wrestle a streak. He was also as tough as boots and was a badass shooter who could hurt you in several hundred different ways which is what you needed on the NWA Heavyweight Championship at the time. Now, this match with Faber is a bit, actually, not quite as good as the match with Bruno because Jack kind of wrestles a style, and Faber's style is not Jack's style. So it's a bit stilted in places, though it picks up a bit towards the end. Again, they go for, I'm just looking at the time card on this, they go for 38, 33 minutes. Um, I don't think we should. We haven't given away any finishes on this, and we probably shouldn't unless it's really obvious, <laughs> which I think we will do later. Well, this one we won't do because people might want to watch it, and uh, we're giving away the things. What's your thought on this one, Marcus? What's your thought on this particular startup for AJPW? Yeah, I like the, the contrast that you spoke to, you know, coming off of, of the Bruno match because, you know, uh, you mentioned like jack might have been able to hurt you in several different ways but it, it really was a clash of styles and i think he kind of recognized early on that certain aspects of his just wasn't what they going to work for what he needed to do to you know to kind of you know go with bob in a traditional sense so what he just he was like look man this is i just got to track this tree down and to do that i'm gonna have to go after these legs you know that foundation and i and I, also, I think that's smart um very smarter for him to do that but you you know I think a lot of times it can kind of be, uh, you know, kind of off-putting. You look at somebody that big and, and you think that's probably their weakest part when they end up probably being one of Bob's, you know, uh, strongest parts. And then he kind of gets you up and then he uses said limbs to kind of break you down a lot of different ways, kind of harking back to that Zach say, but Junior think he doesn't necessarily just have to attack you in one way. Um, so... Like you said, it was definitely off-putting for, for Briscoe because, like you said, he wrestled a kind of different style. But then that toughness kind of kicked in, um, which is kind of what you have to do against Bob anyway. It kind of feels like he's like this weird mix of, well, for me now, because obviously these guys come after him, like Suzuki, uh, Sabre Jr., and then like Ishii with, with his toughness. So it's uh, I don't know if anybody can really overcome that triple threat, really, you know. No, for sure, from a storytelling point of view, it's really interesting because, like, how do you attack this massive baby face who has the fans behind him, who's an exceptional professional wrestler and is huge as well? <laughs> kind of an odd, odd kind of setup. It, it's interesting as well. We see kind of what became the tradition for the NWA Heavyweight Championship matches 
Baba has notable wrestlers in his corner, the baby faces of AJPW, including the Destroyer and a very young Genichiro Tenru and Atsushi Anita. Well, maybe not Anita. I don't think he's got there yet. He would be off in Texas. And uh, Jack Briscoe has uh, the American wrestlers in his corner as well. He was at Kagoshima, Japan, Prefectural Gymnasium 5,900, which isn't up there with the Luthers, Ricky Dozan matches of the 1950s, but 6,000 people is nothing to be sniffed at. And this was a brand new company. It was less than a year old. And they get the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion into, into what they call the NWA Championship Series. Much like the JWA had run 15 years earlier, this was a championship series. Jack Bruce was there for a tour to defend the championship for two weeks. That was going to be a big moneymaker. How important do you think it was to AJPW to get this coup of the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion? I think it was. I think it was great because um, it, it's credit. It's so much credibility on, on on both sides, and it's also really great to see um, you know companies like that be able to to, to kind of come together and work together for the betterment of not you know just the business. It's just good business, you know, really. And um, obviously, you know, it's funny. Before the show, I talked about how I'm kind of coming into this, you know, watching. Uh, like the a pure tournament that's going on right now in, in Ring of Honor, um, and just like the, the respectability around you know all aspects of the craft, and you get that with this, obviously because it's a series, and um, you know there's also guarantees with the way they set this up because you said he's kind of in there for like two weeks, and the way these matches are set up, you know you're almost guaranteed a good, you know, the price of admission because you know the champion has to you know like you said. Um, well, not necessarily having a disadvantage, but the whole thing is to get two victories. And when you kind of look at somebody like, you know, Baba, who was just, even if he's the challenger coming in, he's kind of the obstacle to kind of get over, not taking away anything from, from, from Briscoe, but there is a certain unique aspect to seeing if somebody can overcome a guy who has kind of set the standard as being, you know, uh, like I said, in a lot of ways, like Ishii, regardless of whether his win-loss record this is the guy, the the hurdle that you have to jump, you know, whether you think you have an advantage or not. So I just think it's really good business. And it also goes back and shows the kind of just the level of prestige that NWA title had and uh, why they tried to, you know, bring it back to this day and age, that, you know, because it's just it's so well rooted in like the best of what wrestling has always been. You know, you look at these matches and that's proof of that. Yeah, for sure. I think that's the key thing. You know, the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion was going to guarantee a good match, which kind of like played into the philosophy of what would come in Japanese wrestling. They expected big matches in their main events. And when all Japan Pro Wrestling closed itself down into being a very insular promotion in the 1970s, sorry, in the 1980s, match quality was one of the things that set them apart from the other companies. They couldn't bring in the big names from the other countries anymore. They wanted to be insular. They wanted to kind of put the focus on their homegrown talent. So the match quality had to be there because otherwise you would go to New Japan that could bring in big Asian talents who were going to do different things. So, you know, it became very much insular in the way that, that, that it was developed. But, yeah, this was, this was interesting, certainly. And it goes through into our next match, which is 
Harley Race versus Giant Baba. We've got two Race versus Baba matches on this particular playlist. I got the orders completely wrong. <laughs> but we'll talk about that later because it jumps to 1976 much later. Uh, and I should change the order of it. We'll talk about that match in a bit. Uh, Harley Race, the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion at this point. He was on his... Ooh, where was we? He was on his uh, fourth championship reign. And he was due to wrestle Giant Baba uh, in... Where was it? Amagaski... No, sorry, Saga, Japan. Um, and this is a good length of match as well. This is... Um, where are we? How long is it? Trying to remember now. Just trying to think. 28 minutes long. The pace picks up. Uh, the Jack Briscoe match was a best of three fours match. This is not a best of three fours match. We're starting to tighten the reins on what the NWA Championship is about by the late 1970s. It's been reduced to one four matches. You no longer have to have two clean pinfall victories over the champion to take the belt. It becomes much more sudden death. And that kind of changes the narrative of the match as well. It's much faster paced and much shorter. And the action is really, really good. Ali Race is an outstanding professional wrestler. So is Giant Baba. And they're friends. <laughs> That's a key factor. They get on well. You know, um, they always go out for the dinner to get in together before the beginning of the tour. And Baba and Race were great fans of each other and sold for each other like there's no tomorrow. The selling in this match and the next match is exemplary. I did say on Twitter earlier that I do think a lot of Harley Race's center of gravity came from the outstanding mutton chops and Afro perm, which he sported in this particular era. Um, but this match was just a great showcase of both wrestlers, both at their peak and arguably the two biggest wrestling stars in the world. What's your thoughts on this one, Marcus? Yeah, I mean, it, this is, again, this is um, probably one of the best matches on, on this thing, and that's saying a lot. You know, just the beauty and the execution. Um, I'm glad you kind of talked about uh, them being friends because later on in the stretch, well, um, obviously, like you said, it's, it's two matches on this card. Like, I wouldn't necessarily guess that, but I, then again, you know, because of the caliber these guys are and, the, you know, I guess their pedigree, you know, um, that that's kind of the ultimate sign of respect, just going that extra mile. To, like, obviously, it's a sign of respect to them. To us, it's like, wow, these guys must really hate each other, which is kind of the point of um you know that exchange but um yeah i mean harley race is selling and i know like you said we'll get to the finishes but i've never seen someone fly over the top row off an atomic drop and it's uh it, it was incredible like just just the way you sell like it's very interesting looking at how some guys sell today specifically um uh, well also these guys i guess one's retired one's um depending on you know how he's feeling like guys like triple h and um sean michaels like they the way they sales very you know obviously shades of harley race in so many ways obviously you know triple h with the harley race knee and all that good stuff and you can just sit, see the influence but it just feels more legit and, and realistic even if it kind of comes off a little bit ridiculous at times it's more believable here because it's giant baba doing the moves where it's like you know, I don't necessarily know if you're doing that that flip over the rope a la, you know, uh, John Michael Triple H style for younger fans if, you know, say you're facing a Carlito or something. Like, it's just more believable here as it comes off a little bit more ridiculous, but it's 
really cool just seeing racist influence, you know, on on wrestlers who appreciate those kind of things. Like you said, the, the beauty in it, the beauty of these these matches, besides the brutality of it, was the selling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, race is outstanding at selling for people, and he would literally bump all night for you if he liked you. Woe betide if he didn't. If he didn't <laughs> like you, um, CM Punk as well was influenced by Harley Race in a different way. He's uh, when he was WWE Heavyweight Champion, he was ruled by the principle of what would Harley do? You know that. The, the not necessarily his wrestling style or his match style, but how he carried himself as champion. What was the right decision to make for the belt and the right decision to make for the company? He becomes the prototype of what an NWA champion is supposed to be about, much more than Jack Briscoe was. Jack was great, and from what I understand, a lovely guy who everyone adored, but he didn't like being NWA World Heavyweight Champion. The, the story that Jim Ross has told, and several other people have, was when he finally dropped the belt. I'm trying to remember on his last run, he drops the belt to Terry Funk in Miami Beach uh, in December of 1975. Walks to the nearest bridge, takes off his watch and throws it in the river because he never has to look at his watch again. He was that sick of being NWA World World Champion. Whereas Harley Race embraced the role. He loved being NWA heavyweight champion. He went to see Triple H in his office at the Performance Center, and on the wall was the NWA heavyweight championship belt that race had actually held. And he went and said, can I have a look at it, please? You know, because he loved that championship. It was part of his life. It what made him tick. You know, those promos he gave in the 70s about being a real man and being the man we're not very far from the truth. He was a genuine guy who genuinely wanted to be the best wrestler in the world and represent the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship the way it should be represented. And I think that's really important. And it shines through in these matches. He knows Baba is the draw. He knows Baba is going to do wonderful things for the NWA in the long run. So to protect the championship, to protect the NWA, and to protect his money-making potential, he makes Babel look like an even bigger star than he already is. Yeah, it's just, it's just interesting concept when it goes back to just like it made me think about like we talked about so many guys, companies sometimes a whole guys they become obsessed with making them, I guess, the perennial. Bridesmaid, but never the bride. And, and maybe with Briscoe, like you said, he could do so many things. And, and you know, he had the look, he had the, um, the speaking ability in front of a crowd and, and with press and everything. And really, I guess you could just sum him up as a really great multi tool player. And I guess he was, I guess, self aware enough to kind of be in that vein of like, I like, you know, like everything around getting to the point to be the guy. But it's like just that responsibility, and that, and, and him knowing that doesn't necessarily make him, you know, less say anything. I think it, it kind of, you know, shows him, you know, being ahead of his time because a lot of guys today just, you know, automatically think they're just supposed to be there, and then they get their responsibility, and they see it's a different beast. So you know, I guess kudos to him for having that self awareness because a lot of guys will get in that spot, get taken out of that spot because for whatever reason they weren't ready, and then. You know, they think the rest of their career is a wash because, you know, they're not in that spot. So, you know, that's, that's a very interesting uh, take with Briscoe because it's just, you don't hear those stories a lot. You know, 
you know, you always hear the thing of if you're in this business and you're not trying to be the, you know, the the, the main guy, then you, you know, probably need to go get a regular job or something. So. Yeah, I mean, he, he was the man of the big gesture. I mean, him and Gerald had the one, the, one of the best tag teams ever uh, in the Carolinas. They had arguably the best tag team feud I've ever seen on and off for three years with Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood which culminated at Starcade in 1983, where they had an outstanding tag match for the NWA World Tag Team Championship, and then went and signed with the WWE on the grounds, it'll be easy, we get to wrestle in New York, no one has to wrestle that hard, you don't really have to go, it'll be fine. And after, after a year on one tag team championship rap match at MSG, which they lost, Jack went straight to JFK Airport, bought a plane ticket for the first plane south, as he described it because he was done, and that was the end of his in-ring wrestling career. Gerald Briscoe stayed put and became Gerald Briscoe. Um, now, there is another match with Harley Race and Giant Baba, but it is awfully similar to the first one. It's just shorter. Um, interestingly, Harley Race bleeds in both these matches. Um, but again, it's all part of getting Baba over. Do you have anything to say about the second match, Marcus, or is it more about the zeitgeist of what these matches were about? Yeah, I think it goes back to speaking with, with what you said. Obviously, you know, um, because it, it that, that first match, obviously both matches are grueling, but that first one, obviously, because of the length of it, and you really felt like by the time you get to the end of that match, um, just the finale of it, like the the, the victor had really earned it, um, because uh, like you said, he uh, he bled definitely, and, and this one was a different beast, and they kind of they got straight to the point with this one. And in in a lot of ways, but like you said, really what this was was kind of setting that stage around the NBA title and also getting Baba up because I guess it's one of that those things where and I don't necessarily like using this quote a lot. Well, um, the the rising tide raised raised both ships, if you will. So um, yeah, like you said, I think this was just kind of just setting the stage of um, guys like Race and obviously coming behind Baba because you know, like you said, this just playlist is a lot of um him more mostly uh saruta uh who was is another beast we're about to get into but uh yeah that's that's what this is about i mean and who wouldn't want to see this 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 kind of match again you know so oh yeah for sure i'd watch ali race and giant baba wrestle each other all week long and to be fair i spent most of today watching these two wrestling <laughs> that's fine by me yeah no this was great and you should watch it it's much more palatable to a modern audience and yeah, the second yeah. one does kick off with harley race kicking baba in the stomach and pile driving him which is the best that's when match you can possibly have uh will trigger warning you though it does involve headbutts off of top ropes and things like that which of course we wouldn't find that nowadays because that's horrible but there we go we didn't know back then that those are things but let us move on now the rising star of ajpw in the 1970s and the early 1980s was a new gentleman called Jumbo Saruta. He was a former amateur wrestler who was of an Olympic standard and he gets picked up by Giant Baba to be the new guy, the new lead ace, if you will. Him and Jinichiro Tenru are kind of the dual aces of the company with Atsushi Anita taking over the junior heavyweight division. Atsushi Anita's relationship with professional wrestling would take a break in 1984 as his knees gave out and he had to go and do something else with his life and he would come back in 1989, form FMW and the rest was history. Jinichiro Tenry would be a steady draw and become the 
guiding force behind King's Road Professional Wrestling in the early 1990s. Tenru was a little bit before that, was kind of burnt out before King's Row came along, but he did his absolute level best to get those guys up to standard. And he kind of had a major resurgence in the late 80s, late 80s, but most of the things we're talking about are in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, and they really showcase what Saruta was about as a professional wrestler this time period. He kind of changes his style later on in the early 90s to a much more aggressive King's Road style. Whereas here, he's a straight up and down professional wrestler and one of the toughest wrestlers on the planet. And the first match we're going to watch him with is the NWA United National title, which he was the champion of as he takes on the Nature Boy Ric Flair in, ooh, where are we, 1978, for the uh, two out of three falls. So we're back to the two out of three falls kind of thing for an NWA championship, which is, I suppose, 79 is when the changeover happens. So this is still the early days. But this is outstanding professional wrestling. We didn't really mention also the layout of championship matches in AJPW, which some kind of followed the JWA mold of lots of girls with flowers and nice presentations and more James Blears, the, the head of the PWF organization, which is a kayfabe organization, obviously, presenting contracts and announcing things before the start of the match in English, which was really cool and interesting. And there's still an awful lot of pomp and circumstance about major championship matches, even this non-heavyweight title match. This was for a uh, second-tier championship in the United National Championship. But they, again, became part of the Triple Count, was very important to the development of AJPW. What's your thoughts on this one, Marcus? Again, this was just beautiful stuff. I mean, you know, um, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of flair, um, obviously, as we've gone through a lot of the, the beginner's guide and looking at, you know, historical matches with the NWA because, you know, Pick a place on the map, pretty sure Flair's been there. Um, or at least has been with some a, a, a lovely lady there. But um, also to this, you know, we, we talk about somebody like Flair being the greatest of all time or, or in that conversation, however people want to put it, because obviously it's subjective. But you really get to see why here in certain aspects. Obviously, we're talking about um, his selling. Um, and, and this is flat in his absolute prime style and profile and like nobody's business hitting that all. God knows how expensive of a robe that was. And, you know, also somebody extremely tough. But then you run into somebody like Jumbo Saruta, who, you know, to me, in a lot of ways, also kind of mirrors, um, you know, Giant uh, Baba in, in a lot of ways. Maybe not necessarily to that tier, but he's, he's close. You know, and, and seeing this exchange uh, here with Flair, this was just an another just masterful display of uh, execution when it comes to the technical aspects of it. And um, like you said, the two out of three, what this was, two out of three falls? Uh, yeah. So this was just, this was a very much a marathon and not a sprint. And to see Flair, like I said, in his prime, because it's, was just really, really some beautiful to see. And like you said, with, with Saruta being the growing ace at that time, you kind of see why he was that guy as well. You know, I think definitely the two main standouts of this place is to me of, of the Jumbo and Giant Bob, because to me they just like the two pillars at this time for the for this uh, promotion. Yeah, for it, it's interesting to see Flair as well. Um. Uh, just in this time period before, I think this was after his first run with the NWA, NWA World Heavyweight Championship. I'm trying to think timing-wise. 
I've got the NWA Championship list beside me, uh, just to try and date. So this was May. This was April, 20, April '78. So he may have won the championship by then. Try and see, because I can't remember. <laughs> uh, let's see. The first Gene Kaniski. Ric Flair won his first championship in 981. So he was a little ways before he was the main event in the NWA, but he's certainly well on his way. He's a big name in the Carolinas, which is really where he made his name at this point. You know, he was feuding with Ricky Steamboat. He was tagging with Greg Valentine. The tag team he had with Greg Valentine was both uh, the world tag team champions and the state tag team champions. They were on fire as a tag team at the time. And, um, you know, he's just technically great. But you also got to bear in mind, he's just like a year off from a horrific plane crash where he broke his back. And he's having matches like this. He shouldn't be able to walk at this point in his life. And he's like he's being hurled around by Jumbo Saruta for 20 minutes. And it's like, how do you do that? Yeah, and it's interesting to say that too, because, and I've always noticed this about Flair, and I think this has a lot to do, like you said, the horrific plane uh, crash in the back thing. He's always landed a certain way with, with uh, bumps and specifically backdrops where it's like slightly to the side. Um, and I'm guessing if you, you're not really paying attention, you wouldn't notice, but I, I've always noticed that with Flair. I, I think obviously that would, would, would lead to that incident. Like you said, he shouldn't be walking. Well, I mean, even now, Flair comes off as an anomaly with a pacemaker and everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just little stuff like that. And I wonder if anybody's kind of sat down and, and talked to, like, just maybe subtle adjustments he made if, if a lot coming off of incidents like that i mean obviously this is just a different breed of guys altogether. but i would imagine like an achilles tear or something with the acl that has to be something that 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 changes how you have to do certain things because it's either out of like an innate fear or just how you have to do it because you can't take a necessarily full-on backbone from the interviews I've heard with from the interviews i've heard with flair it, it is like you said he was scared to land on a flat back bump he always took it to the side because he wasn't sure and never was sure how his, how his back would cope with it. Now, we both know he had 30 more years left of bumping in him before he kindly thought, finally called it a day. But, yeah, um, yeah. yeah it, it was definitely it was kind of an anxiety about what his back would do if he landed square on it. Um, so he kind of always took that flat back bump to the side. And there was a lot of, in this match, you still see it slightly. I think there's one bump he actually takes. Um, to the back but other than that you know and Jumbo and Rick didn't get on that well <laughs> from from what I have heard down the line it was a big shoot interview High Spots did a shoot interview with Rick Flair a few years ago and I've listened to that and I'm not sure that he was a big fan of Jumbo I'll explain a bit more when we talk about their rematch a couple of years later for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in the early 80s um, but this is just like how you this is if you want to do a three four match this is how a three four match should work you know um both guys get their finishes in and there's a surprising ending you know it, no one really loses anything but the, the you know i don't want to give away the results of the match because in case you haven't seen it and you want to watch it but it is a really well told story in how to do a three four match properly yeah absolutely right then. absolutely We'll move on then to our first and perhaps only New Japan match on this particular playlist. The rest are all of all Japan's. 
But I wanted to find one that wasn't on New Japan World. <laughs> and it's for the WWF World's Heavyweight Championship between your champion, Mr. Bob Backlund of Connecticut and Mr. Dusty Rhodes of Austin, Texas. Uh, this was from May 27th, 1980. It's in a New Japan ring who were WWWF affiliated. Vince McMahon Sr. was still in charge of the WWWF back then. And boy, were we all glad when Vince took over and just made it the WWF. Uh, but this is Mike for the World's Heavyweight Championship. And it's weird. Because at the time, Dusty was the biggest name in Florida. He was the, he was the god of professional wrestling in Florida. He was it. He was the biggest, one of the biggest baby faces in North American wrestling. And here he's wrestling Bob Backlund, the biggest baby face in North American wrestling. And for a title he's not really affiliated to in a company he's not used to working for, but for some reason, Antonio Inoki wanted Dusty Rhodes versus Bob Backlund. Or Vince McMahon Senior decided to give Antonio Inoki Dusty Rhodes versus Bob Backlund. It's a bit strange, this match, Marcus. What are your thoughts on this one? I really dug it. It was a, it was a change of pace from, I mean, obviously it had technical aspects of it, but, but it, um, I think somebody, uh, I was looking at it, they called, like, it's kind of, this was like the all-American boy versus the American dream um, kind of deal. And, um, and yeah. um, it, like I said, it was a lot of technical ground type of thing, but it really came off like these two, you know, rival um, mechanic shop guys that just had to come together. Like, see, like I'm both of us can't be in this town. I got to see which one of us, you know, uh, is going to be the main guy. And it really came off just like a good, just a scrap between these two guys, man. So. Like I said, it was a, it was a it was a good change of pace, but uh, like you said, with the history of it, like like you just mentioned, it it is odd. But you know, um, seeing Dusty in that light with that robe, and obviously they got the the whole introduction with the um, the anthem and everything uh, with the flag in the background. Dusty really looked like he was the guy, no matter where it was, uh, what promotion. He really did look like the guy, you know. So. It's just kind of cool seeing him in this light because obviously um, I would I would come to know him in his latter years when he became more of a mentor. Um, so it's it really cool to see him specifically right here um, in, in kind of his glory moment. So. Oh. <clears throat> Hang on. Yes, there we go. Sorry. Turn the microphone off, turn it back on again. Also, kind of the pomp and circumstance in this one. Started with, uh, of course, the American National Anthem, the two American wrestlers defending the World Championship. Yeah. yeah. Which was nice, a nice touch. Um, but noticeably, no one in the front row paying attention because all the cameras are flashing at uh, Dusty and Bob Backlund. But again, it shows you what a big media event a World Championship level match was for Japan. Um, especially to you guys like, who were so highly rated. Um, Dusty did spend a lot of time him and, and Dick Murdoch of course the West Texas Outlaws did build their reputation in New Japan Pro Wrestling as they were associated there but as we find out the AWA was actually more associated with all Japan Pro Wrestling now bit of explanation here folks because this one's going to take some real explaining so the next match on our list is for the NWA Heavyweight Championship of the World sorry, the AWA Heavyweight Championship of the World, with Nick Bonkwinkle defending the championship against Jumbo Saruta on the 22nd of February 1984. 
with your referee, former NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, Tuxedo Terry Funk, in, again, a bit of a bizarre matchup, but this was, I think, the best match of so far on this playlist. It was absolutely thrilling. It was for the World Championship, the Jumbo Saruta in his hometown, Terry Funk going out of his way to sell a refereeing job you wouldn't believe. It's the most compelling refereeing job you've ever seen. And Nick Bockwinkle in his absolute pomp as the AWA heavyweight champion of the world. And it just goes to show how underrated Bockwinkle was as a champion. This is outstanding professional wrestling and the kind of professional wrestling you want to see. And you also see the evolution of the crowd in this matchup. The crowd are hyped for this. You know, we talk about Japanese fans were reserved back in the 80s. No, they weren't. Back in the 80s with the right boy at the right time, they would go crazy, go nuts for the guy. And this was a perfect example. They're breathing fire by the end of this match. And it's absolutely breathless for how long is this match? I'm trying to remember here. Let me have a look. This match is, I believe it is the best of three. No, it's one four, but it is 40 minutes long. And they are absolutely on fire from bell to bell. What's your thoughts on this one, Marcus? I mean, I don't know if I could uh, follow anything. Everything you you kind of said it all, you know. Uh, although it's funny because because uh, I kept having to remind myself that um, Funk wasn't a fan doing a run in. Um, was that attributed to just how much it felt like he was doing in this match? And I know he had to sweat out every single item of clothing he had had on specifically under those lights. But man, like you said, this was just phenomenal. Like I said before, like, you know, Jumbo kind of reminded me a lot of, of Baba. And, like, if you don't uh, set the pace early and, and keep on it, you're going to be behind. And Bachman, like you said, was absolute pulp. He took it to him every step of the way, oftentimes dictating the pace, which not a lot of guys did against uh, uh, Jumbo necessarily in certain aspects. And then, um, that, that I mean, like I said, the match was phenomenal from that standpoint. But Funk put so much emotion into it because we both know we've talked about this a referee could either make a match like a beautiful firework display or he can make it like you can do so much as like it's like watching a dog take a dump like they can make a break a match in a lot of ways and he he just kind of added to it um so yeah i mean it, it was like three things coming together to, to really work and, and like you said, this probably is the best match on the show because it really is um, just a straight up and down pendulum swinging back and forth, and you don't kind of know which way it's gonna end end up when things when the clock runs down, if you will. So um, yeah, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. This was this was beautiful. Yeah, I I'm, I, w- I did say earlier that Terry Funk was dressed in all of the possible possible for the polyester you could imagine. It must have been very uncomfortable. But yeah, I mean, Bockwinkle versus Saruta, it, it was a match of its time, but they were great wrestlers, and we don't really see this in the pantheon of great Japanese moments, but it was. It was massively important. The AWA Heavyweight Championship was a big deal in Japan because of uh, Billy Robinson, basically. It was obviously had those big matches with uh, Bern Ganyu in the 1960s and the early 1970s. You know, we're talking about the... Um, Chicago White Sox Stadium, Kaminsky Park, they sold that out. So that title comes with a reputation and therefore it comes with 
a story. And Nick Bockwinkle is the quintessential heavyweight champion. You look at the way Nick Aldis carries himself as the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion now, it's certainly Harley Race's influence, and it's certainly Ric Flair's influence, but there's an awful lot of Nick Bockwinkle in what um, Nick Aldis does. You know, his, his presence always wearing a suit, you know, his presence in promos, he never goes above a shout, it's always very smooth and delivered, and that's Nick Bockwinkle, you know, unruffled. You know, we didn't have him here, but Bobby Heenan was his manager. And he was part of the original Heenan family in the AWA. And I kind of wish that Bobby had been there uh, in this matchup because I think he would have blown a gasket entirely. Still feel like fun being entirely. Yeah, certainly. Uh, but Terry was absolutely spot on as a referee. He did insist on in sticking his ass in front of the hard camera a lot of the time. Like, <laughs> a close-up on a, an armbar. And Nick Bockwinkle's amount of variations on an armbar. An advent calendar full of armbars is Nick Bockwinkle. And then Terry Funk would see the camera was on them and just plant his backside directly in front of it. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, yeah, this you've got to see this match. If you there's, a, there's 13 matches on this playlist. If you don't see any of the others... Watch this one because <laughs> it's massively important historically, but also it is by far and away the best match quality. Should we move on to the next one, Marcus? Yeah, yeah. So next is Rick Martel versus Jumbo Saruta. Um, Rick Martel kind of took over as the ace of AWA in the early 1980s and had a very successful run with the AWA championship. I've lost my playlist here, so I'm trying to find it go back. And, of course, the person he had to defend it against the most in Japan was going to be Jumbo Saruta because he was, well, he ended up being uh, an AWA champion himself. So Rick Martel versus Jumbo Saruta in 1984 is kind of like a number one contenders match. It's really important to uh, the way the AWA ran and certainly the way AJPW run. And... Rick Martel was pretty damn good, but I don't think he ever had quite the quality or presence of Nick Bockwinkle, and certainly not Vern Gagne, who was on another planet as far as pro wrestling was concerned. This was an interesting matchup, and certainly Rick Martel was good enough to have a great match with Jumbo Saruta, but I think it was more, whereas before we kind of saw Nick Bockwinkle and Jumbo Saruta on an even keel, and later we'll see Terry Funk quite clearly kind of making Jumbo Saruta, this was an awful lot of Jumbo Saruta carrying Rick Martel to a good match. Because Rick was great, but he wasn't that great. What's your thoughts on this one, Marcus? Yeah, agreed. I mean, you can, um, like you said, it, it was it was a really good matchup. There's no bad matches on this uh, play. That's the great thing. I mean, it's anything James put together is not going to be filled with any sort of type of garbage because he, he watches too much wrestling to, to watch garbage. But, um... Yeah, I mean, that that clearly was kind of like a, a tier system. And even, like you said, Jumbo kind of coming up into the ranks, he kind of already felt like, in a lot of ways, years ahead of his time with just certain things he did in, in certain aspects. Uh, but this is by no means a bad match. It's just you, you could kind of tell, um, you know, that there was a, a, a bit of an outclass in certain aspects. God dang it, my microphone has been playing up today. Sorry for the gap there. 
yeah, I mean, Rick Martel, he had a successful run in the AWA. He was a kind of queen put babyface. This was before his run in the WWE as part of the Strike Force tag team with Tito Santana, and then obviously as Rick the Model Rattel, which is kind of his natural calling. He is was a very good smarmy heel, um, but he had like his move set did not change very much. The finisher he had here was a sleeper, whereas his finisher in the WWE was a Boston Crab. He was never like a great pure wrestler. He had a couple of top rope moves, but he was a good-looking guy who could carry a match and had good match psychology and great timing. Um, and Saruta was just a couple of steps above him, but there was nothing wrong with this match. It wasn't dreadful. And again, it's another Broadway match. I think it goes for like half an hour. It's well worth watching just to see what the AWA was like at the time because there isn't an awful lot of the AWA on YouTube, um, whereas because it's owned by WWE rights, so you don't get to see as much of it as you used to unless you go and get the WWE Network, which I assume some of you will do. But the it's interesting to see Rick Martel in kind of this unadorned fashion as the AWA World Heavyweight Champion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we move on to the next match, which is a jump back to 1976, because I kind of got the order wrong. I was looking for matches and pulling them in the playlist, and then I reordered the times, and I missed this one out. <laughs> Sorry. Um, 1976, back to the NWA, and this time it's Terry Funk defending the NWA Championship over the best of three falls against Jumbo Saruta. Um, what are your thoughts on this one? Because this one's a bit different to the matches we'd seen Terry had kind of settled into the role that Harley Race had done of being the kind of babyface, but kind of heel when he needed to be champion. And this was him at his absolute peak. What's your thoughts on his match in this match with Jumbo Saruta? Yeah, I appreciated it because, you know, I've always heard so many different things about Terry Funk and I've seen a lot of them in different aspects. Uh, but this was, this was a different beast because, like you said, kind of a lot like and, and, you know, going back to what we get seen from race earlier, and like I had mentioned, in these sort of situations, whether it be um, Baba or Saruta, even though Baba, it was kind of the more up-and-coming guy, obviously, you kind of have to set the pace. Like I said, a lot of these matches kind of feel like watching chess. Um, and if you, you don't, you know, dictate the pace and kind of keep it early, you will be you know, fighting from behind, and that's not good when a guy has a certain amount of reach and then can really just knock you out with a chop, but it's breaking you down from a technical aspect. So, you know, um, there's not many times that we had, you know, some guys on here that made guys like Saruta step up to that level and it kind of felt like that's what Funk was doing, and the fact that it was two out of three falls just made it even better because you got more of it. So, you know. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you also got to bear in mind, Terry Funk taught Jumbo Saruta how to wrestle. This is very much a student versus teacher matchup. Uh, the, the plan for the AJPW Dojo is you did your basic training with Giant Baba in, in Jokyo, and then you got sent to Texas for the Funks to make you great. <laughs> and whilst he was in Texas, Jumbo Saruta had the honor of being the first Japanese wrestler in Texas to actually be a babyface. You know, they assumed he was going to have to be like a, um, you know, heel because of his being Japanese, to be honest with you. And obviously Pearl Harbor. Um, but he was just that good. The Japanese fans took to him instantly. They adored him. So because of that, he was made a babyface and that's what he stayed. 
And it was it was interesting to see that development that kind of like flowed his style when he got back to Japan. He's a natural, easygoing, charismatic guy that you can really get behind. And he's not an underdog. He is that good. And he's showing it here in 1976. He is well worthy of an NWA heavyweight championship match and goes with his mentor for the full distance. He doesn't win the title, but that's the point, isn't it? You're not quite good enough yet, but in time, you will be. Yeah, you need matches like this to, to, to make guys, and obviously, like you said, um, all the way back to you know the matches he was having with Martel and stuff. Uh, you know, this was kind of just building blocks for him, and this this was, you know, like you said, the Funks was was like the, for so many years just the standard peer across the industry, but this specifically kind of was like his big boss. If we're talking video game terminology. And uh, it, it's no shame in not being, you know, able to knock him off that first time. You know, like your favorites, we, uh, your favorite Okada. We, we've seen similar stuff with him. You know, but I guess Tanahashi was his big boss. So, you know. Yeah, certainly it's a story you see again and again. Okada had to, well, Naito is probably the better actual kind of comparison, I think. No, no offense to your argument, but you're right. Naito spent most of his career since forming Aussie Nobles de Bahapon burying the ghosts of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You know, he had to beat Tanahashi. He didn't just have to beat Tanahashi. He had to murder Tanahashi. He had to kill the spirit of Tanahashi to prove he was worthy of the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. He had to beat Okada. He had to not just beat Okada. He had to go and do it twice. <laughs> you know, he is... I think the, my best characterization of the NATO character is he's the martyr of New Japan Pro Wrestling. He has to do everything the hard way. Everything mm -hmm. comes easy to Okada. He just turns up and everything lays at his feet because he's just that good. Whereas NATO had the long way around to get everywhere. Which makes his championship victories all the sweeter because you waited that long. But it does mean you have to have that patience with NATO to get there because you know he's going to screw up. You know he's going to do something wrong. Akada's not going to do anything wrong. It's sure. It's a done thing. Akada's got it right. Whereas NATO has to take a long way around. But I see what you mean about Saruta with Akada, that comparison. I think yeah, it's a very yeah. fair comparison, is that Saruta doesn't look haggard. He doesn't look hassled. You know, and the next match we're just going to talk about now, it's 1982. It's six years later. He's wrestling nature boy Ric Flair for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship in what looks like Budokan Hall. Best of three falls. So you're going back to the old way of thinking. And as far as I can tell, I think this is Sumo Hall. It might be Budokan Hall. Uh, no, it's Sumo Hall. It's not big enough to be Budokan. This is Sumo Hall. This is a big deal. This is it. This is professional wrestling at Ray Goku. You know, and... It's Nature Boy Ric Flair, and it's Jumbo Saruta. It doesn't get any bigger than this in 1982. This is as big as professional wrestling gets. And Saruta looks calm. He looks relaxed. He looks ready to take on the world's heavyweight champion. And they have an absolute blinder. And Saruta is absolutely beloved. And Flair is absolutely respected, but not hated. What's your thoughts on this one, Marcus? Yeah, this was just, you know, I think what made this so great is, is, is kind of seeing... Um, like you, said, you know, the bill was Saruta, and obviously, you know, Flair's at a different point now as well. Um, you really just see, like you said, a masterful execution. 
But uh, I do have to ask you about that story that you had mentioned earlier because it is interesting you giving that tidbit about these two not necessarily um, having uh, the best of interaction, but at the same time having such chemistry inside the ring that you would never, you know, be able to guess that off first uh, first take, I guess, if you will. Uh, oh, hang on. Yeah, you're almost working now. Can you hear me, Marcus? Yeah. My, microphone, my, my screen, for those that I do apologize, my screen keeps going blank, so I can't see my microphone switch. But I'll tell you the story. This was on that High Spots interview. Flair had obviously just won the World's Heavyweight Championship, and he was about to go into this dominant run. But he was the first performing World Heavyweight Champion. He was not a shoot fighter. He was pretty tough. He had an amateur background. He could kind of look after himself. But he wasn't on the Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk level of just flat-out tough, shoot-hard craziness. And he wins the championship, and then he's booked to All Japan Pro Wrestling the following week. And he goes to see Sam Mushnick, and he says, what happens when Jumbo Saruta decides he wants to be NWA World Heavyweight Champion? Because I can't stop him. And Sam thinks about it for a while and says, take Harley with you. That'll fix it. (laughs) And it was partly because, you know, Harley would win the championship back in Japan from Jumbo one way or the other um, and then drop it to Rick when they go back to the States. Or Harley would just make sure things went smoothly. And a lot of that was down to the relationship Harley had with Giant Baba. It wasn't about necessarily, um, you know, being the hard man and demolishing Jumbo just to get the championship back. It was more to do with the politics of the situation. So Jumbo and Flair didn't always get along, and Harley Race did actually have to give Jumbo a dressing down in in uh, Giant Baba's office one night after Jumbo had German suplexed Ric Flair with the dodgy back and kind of hurled him across the ring. He was sat in Baba's office, and Harley walked in and said, if you ever suplex one of my friends again, you will have to deal with me. And Baba let it stand because that was, you know, you ask them first and make sure it's okay. But if you do it to one of my friends without consent, then you will do it and you will have to see deal with Harley Race, which was a big, scary deal. And obviously, Jumbo was very polite with Rick in future endeavors, but it was touch and go. It was a relationship between them for a while from what Flair has said in the past. And they, but they are two great performers. You know, Jumbo was a hard case. He could look after himself. And later in his career in the late 80s and early 90s, he kind of put that tough style into what would become King's Road Wrestling. And he's one of the founding fathers of it. He doesn't always get necessarily the respect he deserves for it because he wasn't part of that Four Pillars of Heaven group that came along in the 90s. He'd kind of been done by then. But certainly up until around about 92, 93, he was still one of the best workers in the world and had completely changed his wrestling style to meet this new high-impact style the youngsters had put forward. Does that cast a bit more light on the situation for you, Marcus? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, specifically, just looking at that, um, I guess, potential, uh, I guess, mentor-mentee relationship between, I guess, possibly him and, and, and Baba. But then, obviously, you know, uh, what takes precedent between that is obviously the respect that that comes with being Harley Race and then, obviously, that, that friendship with Baba. So, I mean, that's interesting. But I, I think it's moments like that that's pivotal for somebody like, you know, Saruta for not necessarily, uh, I guess, the 
to say it's short, getting ahead of himself in a lot of ways, because you know it was just as important for Flair to maintain um, longevity as it was, you know, for him because of what you know both these guys meant to the industry. Obviously, obviously, like you said, uh, you know, Flair may be touted more, but you know, certain things that Saru did, uh, you know, a foundation for, like you said, King's Road, which we continue to see so many uh, different influences influences with today. So, um, yeah, it, you know, sometimes it takes a dressing down like that by somebody who could le- probably legitimately knock you the hell out. Like, I would not want to get punched straight on by any of the guys on this show, specifically somebody like Harley Rake, so. Yeah, for sure. The next match on this particular tape is another match with Jumbo Saruta. It's from later in the year, Jumbo Saruta versus Rick Martel. In a kind of bad-tempered scrap, it, it tells a different story to the first match, which was much more of a classical professional wrestling match, whereas these two are kind of really having a right go in this one. And it ends in a different way. It ends in a very scrappy ending. Um, but it's a different story that they're telling, and it's interesting to see the story that they're trying to tell between the two. It's got to evolve. They're still the two top contenders for the AWA Heavyweight Championship, but it's got to move on, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, like you said, this was a faster paced uh, deal. Uh, I think this maybe went not even eleven minutes, um, but it, it it was like you said, it was a scrap. It kind of reminded me, like you said, of um, going back to the uh, the Dusty match in a lot of ways. Obviously, that that was far longer and, and a little bit more, or a lot more technical in terms of uh, execution. But this 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 was good too. Just more uh, like sudden impact type of deal. Yeah, for sure. There's not a lot we can say about it. I kind of included it on the list because it, it was there and I wanted to see what it was like and just to see if there was any differences. And there was obviously a difference in match presentation, but it's kind of still got the same limitations because Rick Martel isn't as good as the other people on this card. It's kind of, it's, it's sometimes unfair because you've just literally watched 12 matches with the greatest professional wrestlers of all time on it and one of them happens to be Rick Martel who's never really in that conversation he was AWA champion at a time period that was a bit strange for the AWA and you kind of have to say is it really what did he was he really deserving of that championship I think he was and he you know he certainly made money in that position but he didn't you look at the guys around him at the time Otto Vance did pay his way to that AWA World Championship, but it certainly made his name in Germany, and he was a world-class superstar. Stan Hansen was a world-class superstar. Nick Bockwinkel was a world-class superstar. Even Jerry Lawler was a world-class superstar. However, was Rick Martel a world-class superstar? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it begs a very interesting question. Like, I, You know, it's always... Kind of harkens back to the conversation we have a lot of times, me and you, about uh, the um, the hierarchy of LIJ, where it's like you probably, it's got, like, yeah. you probably got some problems in the world when you see that group, and there's so many guys, but but it's led by Naito, and then you know you got you know Takahashi, and then Shingo, and then you go down the line, and then me and me and you are looking at like, come on, man, somebody say something about Desperado. <laughs> It's like somebody say something about Desperado. He really is good, damn it. And then he, he gets a chance to show it off, and we, we kind of get reminded of that. But it's like, 
in the light of those other guys, will he ever get to, you know, it's just due, um, unless maybe he goes down the line and pulls an evil, if you will, and, and maybe potentially has a better run. God knows that will seem like a completely different reality um, than the one we're living in now. But um, it, it kind of harkens it's back to that. But again, it, it's kind of in a lot of ways a good problem to have because it's not taken away from Montel, but there is, you know, tiers or levels as to as, as this generation would say. Yeah, for certainly, for sure. I, I think that's the that's the thing with Martel. He's great, but he isn't that great. You know, he's great at making a living. Was a massive drawer in Canada as well as the AWA. In the right moment, in the right place, could make money. Was apparently going to have a tag team with Don Callis in the WWE. Um, called the supermodels, and they were going to wear thong swimsuits as their ring gear. This was way before Don, you know, when Don had long hair and <laughs> before he got his neck rearranged too many times to become a professional wrestler full time. Um, but yeah, no, I, he's in Martel's interesting, he's probably worthy of some more attention from wrestling historians because he kind of like is he's the guy that was Tito Santana's tag team partner. He became much more successful than Santana as a singles wrestler. But it was he was like kind of that forgotten era. He was a mid-card heel in a really hot company where there was a bunch of other really hot guys as Rick the Model Martel. And in the AWA, he was the top guy for a company that went out of business about two years after he left. So or four years after he left. So you know, there's also, I mean, that's not his fault by any stretch of imagination. From what I understand, they made good money with him as champion. But it, 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 you know, there's so many intangibles with him. And he doesn't go on to do other things, great things afterwards. I mean, Barkwinkle's at the end of his career when he becomes champion. Stan Hansen goes on to have that incredible career in Japan. Otto Vance has an incredible career in Austria and Germany. But, you know, there is, the, I'm not convinced Martel was as great a champion as the AWA needed at the time. However, moving on to the last match and the latest match on this particular playlist is Kurt Hennig, who was then the AWA heavyweight champion of the world, wrestling Masahiro Misawa as Tiger Mask 2, one of the four pillars of heaven that would form the King's Road style in the 1990s. And this kind of neatly brings us to an end of a 30-year era that goes from the very birth of what Puddle Wrestling was about in the 1950s to a new generation of professional wrestlers that would change the entire way we think about professional wrestling worldwide. So I thought this was a good place to end. Hennig versus Misawa is a dream match, but at the time, it certainly wasn't. Misawa was just another rookie building his reputation, and as strong a reputation as it was, he was really a junior heavyweight. He was really not comfortable in the Tiger Mask 2 gimmick. And he was kind of looking to break out and would break out within the next year as he would become Masahiro Masawa and become heavyweight and become what we know as one of the greatest professional wrestlers who ever lived. And Kurt Hennig was a second-generation wrestler. His dad was Larry the Axe Hennig. He was AWA like through and through and he grew up in his father's territory, had a tag team with Greg Gagne as a second-generation tag team, and grew up into a wonderful heel that we knew and love as Mr. Perfect. But this is pre-Mr. Perfect. 
This is his AWA championship run, but he carries himself like a world's heavyweight champion, much in the same role as Nick Bockwinkel did in the early 1980s. Hennig's that good, and he hasn't slowed down yet, and he hasn't bulked up yet like he was in his WWE run. He can go a lot harder. He can do a lot more things. I really love this match just because it kind of showed the potential of what Kurt Hennig could have been if he'd stayed put in the AWA and tried to keep that company going as being the long-term ace of AWA, but also shows his absolute full set of tools that he had at this stage in his career before he kind of cherry-picked the best bits for his WWF run. And again, it shows you what Misawa could be. The potential that's brimming in him during this match is outstanding. What's your thoughts on this one, Marcus? Yeah, obviously, I echo everything you said. And, and you know, it was really cool seeing um, Hennig before the whole Mr. Perfect thing because even though he was doing the Mr. Perfect thing, I think before, uh, again, before I started watching, it was always fun going back and seeing um, that, that potential gimmick. And, and in so many ways, it's felt like, specifically WWE has been trying to get the next Mr. Perfect ever since. Um, because he was just so, it was, you know, like picture perfect form in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, looking at this, this, you know, the building blocks of what he was doing here. And like you said, AWW uh, and, and AWA, um, it's why, it's so many different aspects of why that gimmick also worked. Um, because, you know, he got a lot of building blocks here and, you know, going against, you know, this version of Tiger Mask and just this match itself. And I got to compliment you on the way you kind of lined this playlist up going from, you know, all the way back to that, that Luthez match, which is 100% pure basics. To this match, this felt like the beginning of what, I guess, the Americanized audience would come to be used to in a lot of ways in terms of one guy being a certain way and another guy having a, a particular look and being may, maybe of a more of a high-flyer persuasion, if you will. And how those matches got dictated. So um, I think this was kind of like the the maybe some certain sparks of that. Also, we're getting a lot of over exaggerated versions now. I mean, you you know you look at this and then you go way down the line, and the evolution is Ricochet versus Osprey, and that's a uh, you know kind of tale of you know the tale of of a different tape. But um, this being in, in the late '80s, you know I do think this was kind of uh, Nice, nice precursor for that. And obviously, I think I've become used to a different, completely, obviously, a different Tiger Mask and a different iteration of that character. So um, seeing, I guess, the li- the lineage of that is, is is really cool. Yeah, we should explain the lineage of Tiger Mask. Obviously, Satoru Sayama was the first Tiger Mask in New Japan Pro Wrestling. When he left New Japan Pro Wrestling, New Japan let the patent slide and the license wasn't renewed. All Japan Pro Wrestling asked if they could buy the plate from New Japan. They said, that's fine. We're not using it. You use it. All Japan Pro Wrestling picked Misahara Misawa to be the new Tiger Mask. That would be Tiger Mask 2. Had a big feud with the Dynamite Kid because they had the Dynamite Kid. So why wouldn't you? (laughs) And kind of built him as a junior heavyweight. But it was obviously he was filling out. And then eventually he would just turn on the entire idea of being Tiger Mask and be who he wanted to be whilst tagging with um, Kawada. Funnily enough, you see Kawada seconding uh, Tenru in one of the matches against uh, Ric Flair, I think it is. 
Um, but Kawada, yeah, he's tagging with Kawada and he turns on, uh, well, he doesn't turn on Tanaru, but he was wrestling two of the older wrestlers on the roster and he just took off his mask and named himself as Masahiro Misawa. And that's where they moved forward with that. Um, and then the Tiger Mask character was lapsed and it went back to New Japan Pro Wrestling again for the third new Tiger Mask whose name escapes me. It was Koji Kanemoto, I think. And Koji Kanemoto, like Misawa, got sick of being the Tiger Mask character and became Koji Kanemoto. And the fourth version of Tiger Mask is the current version of Tiger Mask who actually started in Michinoku Pro because they bought the rights from New Japan um, and ended up signing with New Japan because he was good with Hunter Magician Thunder Liger. <laughs> And that's that was that really. That's how that all the the whole Tiger Mask thing played out. But certainly, you see kind of the birth of all sorts of things in this match. And I think it was a good one to finish on because, like you said, Luthez versus Ricky Dozan was state of the art wrestling in 1957, and Kurt Hennig versus Misawa was state of the art wrestling in 1988. Thirty one years between them, but it's the evolution of Japanese wrestling. The fans are really hot for this match. The wrestling is expansive it's inside the ring it's outside the ring there's brawling there's pure wrestling there's aerial wrestling there's everything in this match and that shows you the development of the entire style of what Puroresa was about in certainly in AJPW and I think more in AJPW than New Japan because AJPW took the style of JWA you can see that evolution that goes through to what becomes the King's Road more so than with strong style that you see in New Japan Pro Wrestling Absolutely. Okay, then. Well, that's the end of our playlist. So that's our end of our big matches and the story of Jumbo Sabruta, the story of the AWA Championship, the NWA Championship, Giant Baba, and, of course, Ricky Dozan. The big matches in the 1950s through to the 1980s. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. My name is James Troopany. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter, and you can find the show at Troopany Show on Twitter. Marcus, where can we find you on Twitter and other social medias? Yeah, just uh, catch me on Twitter at uh, Paradox Kid. That's Kid. K-I-D. Yeah, just uh, be kind, people. You know. Indeed, do be kind, especially on Tuesday. Go vote, our American friends. Please do. Anyway, my name is James Troopany. You can find the show on uh, Facebook, The Troopany Show, and you can find us on Patreon. Now, I would just like to say on Patreon, if you would like to give us some money, that would be lovely. We've had a bit of a dip in Patreon subscribers, and it does help us keep the show on the air. The costs aren't minimal to keep us a SoundCloud account together, but it does cost us money, and it would be nice if we could just do the show. When we say keep the show free forever for everyone, that's what we mean. I want to keep the entire archive of the Troopany show free for everyone to access whenever they want to, uh, but it does cost money to do that. So if you could feel your way forward, I know it's very hard with COVID times and people not earning as much money as they used to, but if you could give me a little bit of money or give us a little bit of money so we can keep doing these shows and not have to pay for them, that would be wonderful. We, we love doing these shows. We love talking to each other and catching up with our friends. And we love bringing them to you. And we have lots of listeners. 9,000 downloads last month. That was absolutely amazing. And that was largely due to the G1 Climax coverage and the more shows that we put on, the more people listen. We want to, but it does cost us money. So if you could see your way forward to giving us some for this service that we give you every week, we'd appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening today. Next week, 
I believe it will be a New Japan Super Show, which should be, uh, I think, King of Pro Wrestling. I can't remember the name. He says going to the New Japan World website to try and figure out what's actually happening next week. But I think it might be on the Sunday. So in which case, we'll have to do something else because no one will have time to watch it. <laughs> How's your, what's your, what are you doing this week, Marcus? Is anything cool happening with you whilst I search up the New Japan World website? Uh, besides waiting to see if the world's going to end again or not, <laughs> um, I was in, in a political realm. Not necessarily. I'm, I'm still catching up. Honestly, I'm still... Um, trying to uh, properly catch up on all the happenings coming out of the G1 um, and uh, a little bit catching up on potential things with impact. But other than that, nothing necessarily too big in the world of wrestling. Do we know when those two tournaments are kicking off for New Japan? For New Japan. Uh, that would be after Power Struggle. We got, um, here we go, Road to Power Struggles this week. Uh, Power Struggle is from Osaka Perpetual Gymnasium. That's Osaka Joe Hall to you and me. That's on next Saturday, the 7th of November. Um, the new World Tag League starts on the 15th of November. That's World Tag League and Best of Super Juniors. I have been asked to do um, a match-by-match -match commentary for World Tag League this year, uh, like I did with the G1, and I kind of would like to do that. I would, I kind of like to do Best of Super Juniors as well, because it's all happening on one night. However, um, I think I'm going to have to pick one or the other. And we always do Best of Super Juniors, and we've never done World Tag League. So I gotcha, think gotcha. I should do World Tag League. Gotcha, <laughs> much, gotcha. much to the chagrin. I might just do the, the best match of the Best of Super Juniors one. I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, but yeah, the big events for New Japan. So it's going to be Power Struggle next week. Road to Power Struggle at K Hall features. Dangerous Techers versus Yoshihashi and uh, Hiroki Goto for the IWGP Tag Team Championships. That's on Monday. That's tomorrow. Uh, there was another Kurikan Hall show today. And then it's next Saturday. It will be at Power Struggle at Osaka Joe Hall. World Tag League starts on November the 15th and runs through to the final on Tuesday, November the 24th at Fukushima. And Best of Super Juniors final will be on... Oh, hang on. Best of Super Juniors final will be... <laughs> this goes on for a long time. But no, I'll start that again. World League title and Best of Super Junior final will be on Friday the 11th of December. That's ages away. <laughs> we might have got out of lockdown by then. We'll see. <laughs> Possibly not. Enjoy yourselves. If you're living in the UK, stay safe, because as of Thursday, you can't leave the house apparently ever again. Um, that's not true. But take care, and we'll see you next week. And hopefully we'll have got a Power Struggle watch so we can review it on Sunday. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye!